ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It is Friday the 9th of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The Russian anti-war candidate Boris Nadezhin has been banned from standing in next month's presidential election. Earlier this week, the veteran politician told AM he believed that President Putin feared his candidacy and that the Central Election Commission was controlled by the Kremlin. Now that commission has ruled him ineligible to run, a decision that Mr Nadezhin is vowing to challenge in the courts. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports. This is just the beginning, just the beginning, Boris Nadezhin told a media conference in Moscow as he flagged a court challenge. But it's more likely to be the end of his attempt to run for president. His team had gathered over 100,000 signatures of nomination, with people queuing in the snow to get their candidate over the line. But many of those signatures were rejected by the Central Election Commission. The 60-year-old expected the decision. Earlier this week, he told AM that Russia's electoral body was not independent. The real decision for my registration uh, is not the decision of the Central Election Committee. It's a decision of Kremlin, of course. Do you think the Kremlin fears you and Putin fears you? Uh, I think, yes. I, I, I think they understand that I can rise very hard, very hard because more and more people hear me. The Election Commission made the case there were flaws with the signatures that Boris Nadezhdin's team had collected, accusing them of counting dead people. The candidate told the Commission that he had widespread support across Russia. The main thing is that there are now here tens of millions who are going to vote for me. According to all the polls, I'm in the second place now, already in double digits. Those are the people who want to vote for me. And you are telling me about 11 dead people or incorrect passport data? Ekaterina Schulman is an expert in Russian politics at the Carnegie Centre in Berlin. She says that the Kremlin made a miscalculation in letting Mr Nadezhdin gather the signatures in the first place and that the Commission's claims about false signatures is not the real reason for his disqualification. The real reason is that his appearance on the ballot would uh, completely destroy the, the scenario of the elections. Authoritarian elections serve uh, a certain purpose. One of the most important is re-legitimizing the system, showing the people that they actually support the leadership, that there is no alternative, that no one can compete This is the main purpose of elections in autocracies. Mr Nadezhdin plans to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. But in a country where the Kremlin controls who is allowed to run and how the votes are counted, he has little chance of success. This is Steve Kinane reporting for AM. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has fired his top military commander, saying the country's armed forces need a new approach as the war with Russia nears its third year. Tensions had grown between Valery Zelushny and the nation's political leadership over the failed 2023 counteroffensive. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins joined me a short time ago. Isabella, there have been reports of tension for a long time. Why has he been let go now? 
Well, Sally, this won't come as a surprise to many people in Ukraine. There had been intense speculation for days that Valery Zeluzhny was going to be let go. Really, for months, it was obvious that the military commander was not seeing eye to eye with the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Late last year, Zeluzhny went as far as describing the war as being at a stalemate, which the president rejected. And it's understood that the two were at odds over many things, including mobilisation, military strategy... So many people did see this coming, but perhaps one of the things that had protected Zeluzhny for some time is that he was an incredibly popular figure in Ukraine. He was called the Iron General by some. He's been leading this war for two years and he was really applauded for his early efforts after the full-scale invasion at keeping some of those Russian forces at bay before major Western weapons arrived. So he was very, very popular. So while this may not come as a surprise to many, it is still a a controversial decision. It will be interesting to see how the Ukrainian public react to this and it could present a real test to the Ukrainian president's leadership. Isabella, what does this mean for Ukraine's front line and for the war ahead? Well, it's been a really difficult few months for Ukraine. Of course, the 2023 counteroffensive is largely considered to have failed. And what we heard from the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is that this change in military leadership will represent a change in approach. Uh, specifically, he said that under the leadership of Oleksandr Sierski, who was previously the commander of the ground forces, that we will see a change in approach to mobilisation, recruiting, rotation of troops, There had been a lot of conversation around how those soldiers on the front line, of course, some of them have been there for two years. There had been calls that perhaps more soldiers and troops were needed. So this should represent a significant change in approach on the front lines. And many people in Ukraine will be hopeful that it leads to some substantial, some tangible wins on the battlefield. Of course, at the moment, it appears as if Russia is closing in on the city of Avdivka in the Donetsk region which they've been trying to capture for some time. And Isabella, what will happen to Valery Zelushny now? Well, as I said, Sally, he's a really popular character. In fact, polling suggests that he is even more popular than the president, Volodymyr Zelensky. He had been tipped as a future presidential candidate. So I think this won't be the last time we hear his name. And officially, we are hearing that he will stay in the fold and that he will still be working within Ukraine's military as this war continues and approaches its third year. That's Isabella Higgins. Eupla, formerly known as the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, collapsed in 2022, leaving thousands of Indigenous Australians out of pocket. Now, the federal government has announced a support program to help victims recoup their money or find alternative insurance, as Oliver Gordon reports. For decades, Eupla, formerly known as the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, purported to be a fully Indigenous-owned insurance business. It wasn't. Gunjamara Wechabalak woman Nikki Foy was one of many Indigenous people signed up under false pretences. They come to my door. This is a time when I'd just given birth to our first child, our first son. So, you know, I've sort of felt very, you know, vulnerable. The then new mother signed up herself and her new baby 
Years later, she also signed up his sister. We were doing the right thing and looking after our kids and, you know, easing the burden. But I would say that we were like $27,000 down in what we've contributed to, what we put into that funeral fund. Ubla's collapse in 2022 left tens of thousands of Indigenous people out of pocket. Bowendik woman Bettina Cooper has been on the front line of the fight to help recoup that money. We have estimated that over 80,000 First Nations people were impacted. And there's a new fund that's been set up by the federal government. Are you satisfied with the terms of that fund? Look, I think it's a fair outcome. Am I doing cartwheels? No. But in... When this company first collapsed in, collapsed in March 2022, the current federal government at that time were not going to do anything. When the new federal government came in, they acted swiftly and put in what they called the Interim Funeral Benefit Program. And they did that because we knew, we told them we had First Nations people in morgues unable to bury their family because of the collapse of this company. That interim program allowed us to bury our people with dignity. And when they put that program in place, they made a promise. They made a promise for an enduring resolution. And today, they've fulfilled that promise. The new program will be for people who held an active policy with UPLA on or after the 1st of August 2015. It's expected around 13,000 victims will be able to access a payment or a low-risk funeral bond. Linda Burney is the Minister for Indigenous Australians. The funeral benefits fund known as UPLA uh, was really um, a very horrid scam on the Aboriginal community. There's no legal obligation for the federal government to cover these costs. The previous federal government didn't cover these costs. Why have you made the decision to step in here? We've made the decision because uh, we believed it was the responsible thing to do. Uh, the people that thought they were investing and covering uh, their own funeral and very often the, the funerals of their grandchildren or their, their own children uh, have been absolutely dudded by this this so-called uh, benefit. For Eupla victim Nikki Foy, the program is a welcome acknowledgement and a chance to recover some of her money. I'm not sure how much that's going to look like or what that's going to be, but... Um, I'm glad there's going to be something. That's Victorian woman Nikki Foy ending Oliver Gordon's report. Tasmania could be on the precipice of a state election as Australia's last remaining Liberal government seeks stronger assurances from two independent MPs who defected from the party last year. A meeting between the Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe and the two MPs is scheduled for this afternoon. It could be a deciding factor in whether the state goes to the polls more than a year early. Reporter Alexandra Humphreys joined me a short time ago. Sally, well, it does seem as if this election speculation is coming to a head today. For some context, about a month ago, one of Tasmania's two former Liberal MPs who defected to the crossbench last year threatened to move a no-confidence motion in the government when Parliament goes back this year. Tasmania's Premier Jeremy Rockliffe has recently written to those two independent MPs, John Tucker and Lara Alexander. So he's demanding that they sign on to a new agreement with the government that would say that they won't vote against the government on motions, amendments or bills in Parliament. Given Tasmania's Liberal government is in minority, the Premier wants some assurance that he'll have the numbers on the floor of the House in Parliament before he goes back. 
The Premier says if those two MPs don't sign on to this new agreement with quite strict terms, then he's going to call an election. He says that the parliament otherwise is unworkable. We've had those two MPs both say that they cannot accept those new terms and they think that their independence will be curtailed if they agree to them. So late yesterday, uh, Premier Rockliffe issued a statement saying that his position hasn't changed. So at the moment, it really looks as if we've got a standoff between them. And we have this meeting this afternoon between the three of them. That's due to happen at about 1.30 in Hobart. So we'll find out whether or not the Premier is going to visit Government House to call an early election. And if he does call it, it will be more than a year before it's due. Ali, remind us, how did we get here? Well, Sally, last May, these two former Liberal backbenchers defected from the government to become independents. And they did that because they said they had concerns about a proposed new AFL stadium to be built at Hobart's waterfront, as well as concerns about transparency. And there was there's another a large electricity infrastructure project up in the north that they had concerns about. So at the time, both guaranteed supply and confidence But the government has looked on shaky ground ever since that happened. So nearly a year ago, both MPs have voted against the government in Parliament on various issues. And this is actually the second time in just over four months that the Premier Jeremy Rockliffe has threatened to call an early election. Uh, Last year, you might remember, he sacked his Attorney General, Elise Archer, and she briefly suggested she might also become an independent, but she eventually quit Parliament altogether instead. So we didn't go to an election then. But the situation does seem quite precarious at the moment. Uh, I've spoken to political analyst Richard Herr about whether the Premier is likely to pull the trigger this time. It's just difficult to see how they can meet, the three parties can meet, and say that a lot of the tension and animus that's built up has been washed away by a single meeting. I'm presuming that rather than doing everything in public, if there had been a way forward to resolve this, it would have done some time ago behind closed doors so that the public wasn't aware of the kind of fragility that the government finds itself in. That's political analyst Richard Herr there and before him our reporter Alexandra Humphreys. The shortage of housing in much of regional Australia is set to be examined today with a summit in Canberra focusing on solutions to availability, affordability and homelessness. It will hear from rural councils that have built housing for critical workers and developers who want higher density in regional centres. But leaders say there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Gavin Coote reports. When Justin Hancock arrived in the outback Queensland town of Quilpie three years ago, a lack of housing options meant he had to live in a retirement village for seven months. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't ideal. Um, obviously, it's a very you know unique living situation. My neighbour, Miss Paulson, um, had her 90th birthday and the next month I had my 30th. So it's not something I think you'd have every single day uh, in a retirement village, but that's you know, what we had to do to make it work. And you know these are some of the conditions that people are having to live in and move into to make sure they have a roof over their head. He's the CEO of the Quilpie Shire Council, which has taken the lead on tackling the local housing shortage that's been brewing in recent years. A lack of private residential development prompted the council to sell cheap blocks of land, inviting buyers to build new homes on them. Yeah, there's an evident, obviously, market failure at probably multiple levels, and that's where um, local government being the closest on the ground and communities are often the ones that are left to pick up the pieces, and they're the ones that, you know, the community hold to account because we're there day in, day out. 
Justin Hancock's among those speaking at a national regional housing summit being held in Canberra today. While the population boom has stabilised in some regional areas since the height of COVID, many communities keep growing and it's making housing even more scarce. Liz Ritchie is the CEO of the Regional Australia Institute. We are really constrained and what's happening is some of our teachers, our nurses, our baristas are unable to find the accommodation that they need and, and that's playing havoc with the lifestyle that we're desiring in our regional communities. A major focus of the summit will be social and affordable housing. There are really tragic, sad stories in rural and regional Australia where we're seeing homelessness for the first time. What we need to do is have a laser-like focus on rural and regional Australia for a period of time because we're navigating an environment where we haven't been before. Another solution being put forward is building up rather than out. John Walkham is a developer behind a new high-rise apartment block in the regional New South Wales city of Dubbo, backed by billionaire Jerry Harvey. You know, 15 storeys, it's well designed, it fits well into the CBD. Those CBDs need regenerating and we just know by the sales that we've had that the demand's there. And the demand could get even greater, with research by the Regional Australia Institute finding one in five capital city dwellers, or three and a half million people, are considering a move to the regions. That's Gavin Coote reporting. Former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif looks set to win a fourth term in power in Pakistan's 12th general elections. The lead-up to the polls has been marred by deadly violence and a crackdown on Mr Sharif's main opposition, cricket legend and former PM Imran Khan, leading to allegations that the vote wasn't free or fair. South Asia correspondent Meghna Bali reports. It was a less than auspicious start. Tens of thousands of police and paramilitary forces were deployed to polling stations across Pakistan. Still, on the eve of the election, more than 25 people died as two bombs ripped through the offices of two political candidates in the country's southwestern region of Balochistan. The attacks continued on election day, with at least three more blasts reported in the same region and across the northwest in Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa. But it didn't stop locals like Rahmatullah Masood from exercising his right to vote. We want people to elect candidates who will resolve all our problems, who will do something to improve our future, so the people are returning home to vote. Authorities suspended internet and mobile phone services across Pakistan to maintain law and order. But Karachi resident Ajab Khan believes the blackout was a way of censoring voter dissatisfaction. The mobile phone networks have been shut since 7am and all the voters are exasperated. All of us are irritated by this, as well as the chaos in the polling booths. The shutdown also meant voters couldn't use apps and websites to see who they wanted to vote for. And the party that suffered most was Imran Khan's PTI, who were restricted from running rallies and relied heavily on social media. The party even ran an AI-generated speech from the former PM and cricket legend, who is behind bars and disqualified from running in the contest after being convicted on what he says are trumped-up charges of corruption and leaking states secrets. Young voters like Noman are frustrated with Pakistan's politics. Thieves and robbers will return to the new government to fill their pockets as usual. 
There will be no benefits for the masses, nor for the youth. Pakistan's leaders have a long to-do list, starting with bringing down soaring inflation, easing cost of living and curbing terrorism. This is Meghna Bali reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. When three American soldiers were killed in a drone attack on a US base in Jordan, there was a flurry of talk of World War III. It may have been over the top, but the stakes in the conflict in the Middle East have risen dramatically. Today, host of the Iran podcast, Nagar Mortazavi, on what could come next. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.